come in our Bibles then to 1 Peter and continue our studies in this letter, looking at the, the second verse this evening, a very full and, and rich verse. Uh, people wondered how I could get a sermon out of verse 1, uh, but uh, you could get many sermons out of verse 2, uh, but we, we just have one sermon uh, on this uh, this evening. We read it together, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse uh, number 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Coming then this evening to think of the first of seven descriptions of a Christian which we find in 1 Peter chapter 1. And this first description, a foundational one for us, is that we are chosen. Chosen by God. We have felt the elation, haven't we, in the delight of being chosen. Whether it was that painting of yours that was chosen to be hung on the classroom wall, or that essay of yours that was chosen by the creative writing group to be read in front of the group, or that model that you made in the night class, the welding night class, and it was chosen as an example of what someone who had never welded before could produce after eight weeks at the night class. We've been thrilled when we or our creation was chosen. Maybe boys and girls, it was you who were chosen for the school team, the rugby team, the hockey team, the football team, and you still remember the delight of being chosen. Being chosen is something that's memorable for us. We want to, to grasp and to experience the thrill of being chosen by God as described in the second verse. We'll come to other descriptions of a Christian throughout this chapter. We are heirs, we are joyful, we are privileged, we are children, we are redeemed, we are born again. These seven descriptions of Christians in this first chapter, but here is the foundational one. We are chosen by God. Verse one, we are elect. Surely this is more thrilling, it should be more thrilling than being chosen for any other thing in this world. You notice that verse 2 defines and enlarges on something in verse number 1. Verse 2 does not begin a new sentence as we see in our translation here, but continues the sentence from verse number 1. And the question is, what is it enlarging on? What is it continuing from in verse 1? What is it picking out and then expanding on? Some say it's the, the word apostle, the third word in. And this second verse is expanding apostle. But I would argue that the second verse is describing something which is not only true of an apostle, but something which is true of every believer. It's far wider than describing and expanding on the apostle. The best understanding that we have is that verse 2 is defining and enlarging the word elect, which defines that the readers that the apostle Peter is writing to. And so this second verse is unpacking for us what it means to be chosen by God, what it means to be the elect of God in this context. Though those stranger Christians are strangers, though they are dispersed throughout the Roman world, though they are, are, are away in other parts from, from the apostle Peter at this time, Yet, 
They are known to God. They are chosen. They are elect by him. Many questions were asked around the appointment of James Cleverly to the position of Home Secretary in November 23. Why was he chosen? What lay behind his appointment and selection? What will his role be? Journalists are all over uh, the President of, of France for allowing a Jewish ceremony in the Parliament buildings, which is meant to be a non-religious, purely secular place. Why did he choose to do that? And they're studying and analysing the choice of the President of France. The second verse is hovering over the word elect in verse 1. It's placing it under the microscope. It's pulling it out of the statement in the first verse. And it's expanding it and exploring it. And delving into it. This description in, in verse number two is explaining and unpacking for us God's choice of his people. Three prepositions are used in this second verse as you can see. According to, in, and for. And each of these prepositions relates to one of the three persons in the Godhead. The Christian is chosen and chosen in relation to the triune God. Let that thrill us this evening. Let us think first of all of the origin of God's choice, of the outworking of God's choice in the work of the Spirit, and the object of God's choice in relation to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the, the origin of God's choice. The first expression in this second verse relates to God the Father, the first person in the Holy Trinity, according to Elect, chosen, that is. We're, we're carrying that word over from verse 1. Chosen, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The phrase asserts that the foreknowledge of God the Father was the cause, the origin of the choosing of all the people who will be saved. Foreknowledge, of course, is a quality unique to God. We do not possess that quality. We have knowledge, but not foreknowledge. We're familiar with the common division of the attributes of God, and we're learning about this in our Bible class into communicable and incommunicable attributes. This aspect of God's foreknowledge belongs to his incommunicable attributes. Humans never have and never will have foreknowledge. Our brain, our, our soul, our mind is not big enough, not powerful enough for that knowledge. Our knowledge is limited to the past and to the present. And even that past and present knowledge of ours is very small. For example, we don't know all that's happening in Ukraine now or all that's happening in Gaza at this present time. All the strategies, all the hardship, all the terrorist plots and schemes. We don't even know all that's going on in our town this evening. We have some knowledge of the troubles in the past in Northern Ireland. But nowhere near a full knowledge of all that happened 
of all who suffered. We know today something about North Korea, but not a lot about that country. We have some knowledge of the past. We have some knowledge of the present. But we have no certain knowledge about the future of our church, congregation, community, or country. We do not possess foreknowledge. If we consider an aspect of foreknowledge, the very poor brother of foreknowledge, premonition, we realize how limited our knowledge of the future is. How often we are convinced that something was going to happen, but we're absolutely wrong. I was sure it was going to rain today, you say. I thought I'd failed thy exam, you say. I was convinced she was interested in me, you say. All right, Sam. <laughs> okay. Our premonition, our sixth sense, our gut feeling has often been wrong. We do not have foreknowledge. But God does. And here it is, right here in verse 2. He knows all that's going to happen and all that's going to happen in our life, in our family, to our children. He knows all before it will ever happen with detail, with certainty. One of the big debates about the Old Testament is the date of the books. And you might say, oh, that's just a, a scholarly debate for people who live in ivory towers. But it's not. The, the, the nub of that issue is, does God have foreknowledge or not? If we date Isaiah away in the, the 300 BC, that means that the events that he's prophesied about the exile and the return have all happened by then. That's history he's describing. But if we date it in 700 BC, where it should be dated, all those events are in the future. Even the name of Cyrus, the Persian king, who would issue the decree for, for the people to return. Those Old Testament prophecies spell out for us and illustrate to us that the God in whose presence we sit tonight, the God whom we love, the God who's our heavenly Father here, has foreknowledge. He knows what will happen to Gaza and in Gaza this week. He knows what will happen in Ukraine this winter. He knows what will happen to the interest rates, how long they'll stay high to the Bitcoin sitting at £35,000 today in the next elections. All of us think we know what will happen in the next elections. There's going to be a Labour landslide victory. And possibly there will be. But he knows all the details. Every MP that will be elected. What Rishi Sunak will then do. He knows all. Because he has purposed all from all eternity. Those of us who wrestle with the book of Revelation, uh, remember the, the easier to understand chapters at the beginning, chapters 1 to 5, before it gets complex and, and filled with pictures that we struggle to, to know how to interpret. But in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, we have this wonderful graphic description of God on the throne and in his, book, in his hand, there is a book. And no creature can take that book or open that book. What a picture it is. And the prophet John is crying because he wants to know this mystery. And the angels cannot take it. And any creature cannot take it. The glorified saints in heaven cannot take this and open this book. But one takes it and opens it. That the Lord Jesus, 
the lion, the lamb, the tribe of Judah. And he opens the book. Revelations about the book being opened. God's purpose for the world being unfolded. Because our God has infinite, precise, eternal foreknowledge. He knew about the, the earthquake in the highlands of Scotland that's happened recently. The tornado in County Leitrim that's happened this weekend. The details of the events in every life of the 80 million in the United Kingdom and the 8 billion in the world. We don't have a big enough brain to grasp all of this. But God, in his infinite wisdom and knowledge, has foreknowledge. He has foreknowledge of us. His knowledge is not an educated guess like the Bitcoin predictions or the weather forecasters, but a perfect foreknowledge because he has planned every detail of our future. In that plan, he's determined the existence of many and multitudes of human beings and from all of those human beings, he has chosen many to be saved. He knows everyone who will exist, but he has chosen some, many, to salvation. The readers of this first letter, the Apostle Peter says, were among those chosen. If you're a Christian tonight, just think about it. He has chosen you according to his foreknowledge. Not because of your beauty, not because of your genius, not because of your piety, but because of his sovereign love. The museum has opened in India. It houses the remains of American planes which crashed in the Himalayans in India in the Second World War. And it's thought that up to 600 American planes crashed into the mountains of the Himalayas the loss of 1,500 lives and teams from America and India from 2009 have been searching the mountains and the jungle regions around there looking for those plains and the remains of the people who were on them. Until now, they had very little knowledge of what had happened. But God knew every detail. That's how great he is. And this is humbling for us, isn't it? This first point is humbling for us, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Some ridicule and caricature this attribute of God. There he sent it as Rabbi Burns did in his prayer, Holy Willie's prayer. He sends into heaven and into hell for his glory. Some deny this teaching and that God sovereignly chooses people to salvation. They argue that God foresaw who would believe and he chose them. There's David Sutherland, for example, born into a Christian home. He'll attend church morning and evening. He'll go to the prayer meeting. He'll hear the gospel at family worship. He will believe the gospel and so God will choose him. But we reject that view of the foreknowledge of God because we are dead in sin. It's like thinking and imagining a flower can fly. A bird can play the piano. A cat can serve you an ice cream cone. All whom God foresaw 
All mankind, us included, were incapable of saving ourselves or believing in Jesus. There was nothing good in us which merited or deserved his choice or election. But in pure grace, he chose a people. If we are a Christian, he chose us according to his loving and sovereign foreknowledge. I listened to the announcement of the choice of the BBC Young Chorister of the Year 2023. And I encourage you uh, to, to, to listen to it. You'll get it on BBC Sounds. It was, it was a fascinating announcement of the winner. It took five minutes for them to get round to the point. There were young people, you see. And the three judges took it in turns to speak. And they didn't want to hurt the feelings of these young people. There was going to be a winner, but they wanted to let them all down gently. But in the end, they chose. They chose on merit. They chose the best. But this is different, isn't it? This is different. There's none of us good. There's none of us holy. We're all sinful. But if we're a Christian, this is the first thing the Apostle Peter is saying about you. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. And that humbles us. But it thrills us as well, doesn't it? He has chosen you out of all the people's Think of the 8 billion in the world, the 80 million in the UK, and only 10% professing Christians. Yet you're one of them. Chosen by God the Father. How comforting this was for the original readers. This is the first point he comes to here. Chosen. We leave election away down the road. But here he is, comforting them. They're aliens. They're scattered. They're away across the world. And yet... They're known by God. I find this doctrine challenging, doesn't it? We cannot choose our natural family, can we? And we cannot choose our church family. It's God who chooses them. And whom God chooses to love. We're to love. And everyone here in, in, in Newton Arts, called by God, chosen by God, changed by God. God has, has selected them from all eternity. He's set his love on them. But you and I are to set our love on them too. Firstly then, the origin of God's choice. Secondly, the outworking of God's choice. This is the second phrase in the second verse. In the sanctification of the Spirit. There's a Latin term which you might know, you might not know, uh, but it's an important term that helps us to understand just the context, the theological context of this second phrase. The Latin term is the ordus salutis, that is the order of salvation, and it refers to the working out of this choice of God to salvation in our lives. Why it's relevant is because what is this sanctification referring to? Is it referring to the holy life of the Christian, of the believer? Or is it referring to something else that comes before it? Is this verse going in order from God's choice 
to the blood of Christ and forgiveness, sanctification, does it come after the sprinkling of the blood or does it come before the sprinkling of the blood? Is there an order of salvation here or is it jumbled up a a little uh, because of the, the emphasis of the apostle? I'm arguing that it is an order and that sanctification here doesn't refer to the holy life of the believer after faith, but rather to the, to the setting apart. That's what sanctification means, the setting apart of those whom God has chosen for salvation. How do the chosen of God come to faith? How do the chosen enter into the spiritual blessings of Jesus? How is this plan of God in all eternity written down in the book of heaven, realized in the lives of the chosen on earth? It's by the sanctification of the Spirit, the setting apart of the chosen person by the Spirit for his special saving, regenerating, and refining work. The Spirit singles out an individual whom God has chosen for salvation. Saul of Tarsus, journeying towards the city of Damascus, in a group of other men bent on persecuting and capturing the Christians. And of all that body of people, the Apostle Paul is singled out and regenerated on the Damascus road by the sanctification of the Spirit. Lydia, at the woman's prayer meeting down at the river outside the city of Philippi. And of all the ladies who were there, she is singled out by the Holy Spirit and her heart is opened to receive the word of the gospel, the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit singles out each of the chosen on the Father's list. He sets them apart for his special saving work. One minute, like Paul, they're against Christ. The next minute, they are trusting in Christ. Preachers can preach. Sabbath school teachers can teach. Parents can plead in family worship, but without the work of the Spirit of God, there will be no true conversion. Hudson Taylor's name is is famous, and we love his story, and, and, and we know it well, and rightly so. But his grandfather, James Taylor, isn't that well known. In 1776, In an Anglican church in Barnsley, James Taylor, Hudson Taylor's grandfather, was a stonemason. He was to marry Betty Johnson. The wedding bells were ringing. The congregation was assembled. Betty Johnson, the bride, she'd arrived. But James Taylor was nowhere to be seen. What had happened to him? Well, he was carrying some bundles of corn in from the field that morning. The part of God's word, Joshua 24, 15, had gripped his mind. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Didn't know where he'd heard the words, possibly from John Wesley. But a sense of sin and judgment came over him. Here he was, about to be married, about to set up home. But he and his new wife, like Joshua, were they going to serve the Lord Or was he going to serve himself? He got down on his knees in the barn. He gave his life to Christ. 
This is the sanctification of the Spirit here. The Spirit setting apart the chosen by the Father to repentance, to faith, to the new birth. If you're a Christian, let us pray for the work of the Spirit in the hearts of unbelievers, in your family, in your community, in your workplace, maybe someone that you're friends with. They're not a believer. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit will do this very thing in their life before our very eyes, that he will set them apart. The special work of regeneration and conversion. To do in them what we cannot do in ourselves with all our prayers, with all our tears, with all our pleading, with all our example. That he will set them apart for regeneration. And if you are a Christian, rejoice when you see the evidence of the work of the Spirit in people's lives. When you hear your child praying or confessing their sins or rejoicing in Christ. Thank God for the special work of the Spirit in their life. And if you're not yet a Christian, pray for the Holy Spirit to make you a Christian. You need the Spirit to enable you to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus. Just as you cannot lift yourself up with your bootstraps, so you cannot save yourself or trust in Jesus by yourself. But ask God for the Holy Spirit. And the, the Bible says that those who ask God for the Spirit, He will give the Spirit to them. Thirdly, the object of God's choice. The object of God's choice. The separations work is indicated by the double use of four at the end of verse two. The Father has chosen, the Holy Spirit sets apart, but what is at the end here? What, what is the object? What's it all driving for? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. I never look at my watch during the sermon. <laughs> I can't see any clocks. and That's great, Deacons. Don't be getting any clocks up here. So I don't know what the time is, but there's a lot of interpretations on this phrase, but I'm just going to give you the best interpretation, the one I think that's precise. Obedience to Jesus Christ. This refers to a two-stage obedience. The first stage is at our conversion, when we take the step of faith. Or when we realize that we believe. We're not only doing what our minister wants, what our parents want, but what God has commanded to do. First John 3.23, this is his command, that we believe in the name of the Son of God. Just as the Ten Commandments are requirements of us, so also is this command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And when we do believe or realize that we believe, this is, an obedient, this is obedience to Jesus Christ. And the second stage is to a life of obedience. God has chosen us. The Holy Spirit has regenerated us, changed us to a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. That we will submit to him. That we will, we will obey him and, and so find and enjoy life with him. Matthew seven twenty four states, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is the person that loves me. Is my disciple. We're to obey Jesus rather than those sinful urges in our hearts. 
or to obey Jesus rather than give in to the enticements in the world. Obedience to Jesus is our calling, is God's purpose for our life. God has chosen us for obedience to Jesus Christ and also for sprinkling with his blood. The sprinkling is the communication of something from something to another thing. It's the application and the idea here is that we come in our sinfulness before God and we acknowledge and confess our sins and God applies to us the merits of Christ's sacrificial death. That's his blood, Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. God has chosen us to forgiveness of all of our sins, of cleansing by the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place, appeasing the wrath of God against our sins. This is the end of God's choice of the Spirit's separation for sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. He has paid the price for our sins. That blood will not be sprinkled on all but on those chosen by God. We go to North Africa, to Mount Sinai. The time is 1300 BC. We find the Jews delivered from slavery. The chapter that we read in Exodus number 19, they were chosen by God, the chosen people. At Sinai, they said all that God has said we will do. And they were sprinkled by blood in the 24th chapter of Exodus 24. Chosen. Obedient, sprinkled. Here's the apostle applying those Old Testament experiences of the Jewish people to the church in the, in the New Testament. We are now the chosen, the obedient, the sprinkled people of God. The evidence that our hearts are changed is that our life is changed. Where our life is changed, there's evidence that our heart has changed, that the Holy Spirit has done that work within our hearts for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're not perfect. We sin, we fail, we misspeak. But we don't want to be perfect. We want to obey our Lord. We desire to follow him. And for the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, one of the biggest causes of depression in our society, in our time, is guilt. A parent who's parented badly feels guilt over their son who becomes addicted to drugs and dies early. A gambler emptied the saving, who empties the savings account destroys his marriage. A young woman texting while driving runs over a pedestrian. Guilt of sin and wrong before God and man is destroying the lives of millions. The fundamental answer for all of us is the blood of Jesus. Such is the value and the worth of the blood of Jesus that it can forgive every sin of ours. However big. Can we learn from Samuel? 
Not Samuel in the Old Testament, but Samuel Rutherford from Anmouth. An outstandingly gifted minister in the 17th century. The last word on his lips every night was Jesus. Jesus, whose blood covers all our sin. This then is the first description of what a Christian is. Chosen. Chosen by God the Father. Through the work of the Spirit. To the sprinkling of Jesus' blood.